Our scripture this evening is from Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. That's on page 744. Isaiah 61, we'll read all 11 verses. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. And they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. And foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations. And in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame... You will have a double portion, and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them, because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So far, our reading then from Scripture. In the Catechism this evening, we've come to question 32. A congregation, in this question 32, we see, again, the deeply experiential and personal nature of our Catechism. Because last week, and again, if you look at the inset there, the box, we're still focusing on the name of Christ. And last week, we focused on what that means. Why is Jesus, does Jesus have this title of Christ? Which, of course, we considered last week that it means anointed. But the catechism doesn't stop there, does it? And this is something that makes our catechism so deeply beloved amongst the Reformed churches. The catechism doesn't stop there. Because it's as if, as the instructor is, is articulating these truths that Christ is anointed to be our prophet, our priest, and our king, it's as if something comes into his mind, and he says, Ah, but we are called Christians. That not only is, is Jesus 
have the title Christ. But all those who believe in Jesus are also known as Christians. This is our name. And we know from the book of Acts in 11, Acts 11 and verse 26, that the Christians, that the, uh, the, the believers were first called Christians in Antioch. You can read that there. I put that verse there on the outline for you. At Barnabas, he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And from that time to the present, people who believe in Jesus have always been known as Christians. And so again, our instructor notes that. We are called Christians. Is there any significance to that? Or is it just the fact that since we're followers of Christ, we're called Christians? Right? Just as the follower of any person might take on his name. Well, the Catechism uh, knows that in the Scripture, there's a deep significance to the fact that we are called Christians. That it's not merely because we are disciples of Christ, not merely because we follow the teachings of Jesus, but there is a rich theology in the Bible of a union with Christ. And that's what we have in our catechism. But why are you called a Christian? And already you, you can sense that personal nature. It's almost as if you can see the instructor and he's sitting in front of his catechism students. He says, now why are you called a Christian? And the answer given us is because by faith, I am a member of Christ. And so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. So now let me read through that again. Because we are anointed in the first place to confess his name. That is, to be a prophet. In the second place, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks. That is a priest. And then in the third place and the fourth place, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life. And afterward, to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. And that is to be a king. A prophet, a priest, and a king. So is the teaching of our catechism this evening. And so, as always, we want to then trace that teaching of the catechism in the scripture itself. Where does the Bible teach these truths? What, what is it in the Bible that the authors of our catechism have said, that is the teaching that we want to capture in this question 32? That not only is Christ anointed, but that all God's people are also anointed. And so I take you, dear friends, to Isaiah chapter 61. Interesting, isn't it, that already in the Old Testament, we have prophecies of God anointing his children to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. Now let's just remind ourselves before we begin in Isaiah 61 of the situation in the Old Testament. You'll remember in the Old Testament that there was a set class of people who were ordained to be priests. They had to be Levites. It was not every Israelite that was a priest. There was a set class of people from the tribe of Levi who were ordained by God to be priests. Then you know that there were, uh, more later in Israelite history, 
that God called certain men and equipped certain men in a special way to be prophets. But it was not every Israelite who was a prophet. And then you know that there was only one man that was a king. So then let's turn and let's look at Isaiah 61. Because here we have a prophecy of the anointed one or the Messiah, right? That's what Christ or Messiah means, anointed one. And in verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. And he continues. Now to do all these things, how will that man, how will he do it? Look at all these tasks, right? To bind up, to proclaim, to proclaim, to comfort, to grant, to give. All these things. How? Well, that happens because of what happens in verse 1. That person is anointed. And not anointed just with oil, but anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, dear friends, when we, when we think of the Holy Spirit of God, we should always connect the Holy Spirit with power or with skill. The Holy Spirit brings power. He brings power. And that's what happens in this case. That here is this man, all right, who is anointed, and now he is equipped, he is empowered to do all these things that are listed in verses 2 and 3. Now let's think about who would have read this. Because you know, dear friends, that the book of Isaiah was written to Israel what, over a century before they ever went into exile. Long before Israel was ever captured by the Babylonians and taken off into exile, and now I'm, of course, talking about Judah, the tribe of Judah, right? Not the ten tribes in the north who went off into Assyria and were never heard of again. But the tribe of Judah, Isaiah prophesied to them and, and, and prophesied in the beginning of Isaiah that you're going to go into exile. But from chapter 40 on, Isaiah is speaking prophetically of when you are in exile. Here are words of exhortation and comfort to you in those times. And so this is what we have in Isaiah 61. And you can imagine that the first readers of this would have scoffed at this. Go into exile? Isaiah, stop all this doom and gloom. Just put it away. Why are you, why are you such a naysayer? Right? But of course, as time went on, and as generation and generation came and went, the Babylonian armies did come to Jerusalem. They did take them into exile. And now, my friends, now imagine that a Jew in exile would pick up this prophecy of Isaiah and read. Oh, what different eyes read the text now. As they sit despondent and despairing in Babylon, and they read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, and especially in verse 2, in verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. You can imagine that those exiles, as they ground on day after day, month after month, in their misery, in their despair, what has happened to all the promises that God gave His people? Why are we in exile? Why are we not in the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob? The land where God promised to Abraham that there would be more Israelites in that land than the stars of the sky for multitude. 
And now here we sit in Babylon. What has happened to God's promises? Has he forgotten about us? And you can imagine that as the years passed, and as they bore the reproach and the insults of the Babylonians, that they would have begun to despair. And you know, I, I, just, I can just imagine, dear friends, an Israelite who suddenly would... What's this here? What's the book? Oh, Isaiah. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance for our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting or a spirit, a spirit of despair. Is this really possible? And verse 4, that we will return to the land, rebuild the ancient ruins, raise up the former devastations, repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And then notice in verse 5, that even the neighbors around Israel will no longer be at enmity against them, that they will even join them in their work. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. Foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. I mean, imagine that you go out to your farm and here comes Joe Philistin or Mr. Edomite or whatever it may be. And they come, let us help you. We'll help pasture your sheep. And then they begin a, a relationship where they work together. There's, there's no enmity, there's no hatred anymore, no peace, no, no malice, there's peace. And verse 6, I, I wish verse 6 actually started with, with an and here. And you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. Now, is this possible, friends? Is this possible? Now, one thing to, be, to, to receive a promise from the Lord that we will go back to our land, that we'll rebuild the cities, we'll repair all the devastation. But now, what's this in verse 6? And this, of course, is our text tonight. In verse 6, you will be called the priests of the Lord. What does this mean? Doesn't Isaiah know that only the Levites can be priests? But he says here in verse 6, Every Israelite will be called priest of the Lord. Every Israelite will be spoken of as a minister of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations. And again, that's the same idea, that the nations will no longer be at enmity with Israel. There will be trade and flourishing. will eat the wealth of nations and their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And so on and so forth. So my friends, we have here a prophecy, don't we? That the original administration of how God administered his people with priests only coming from the tribe of Levi, that that will now change. That there's a time coming, the favorable year of the Lord, the day of God's vengeance, when he will put aside the enemies. He will lead his people back to the land of Israel. They'll rebuild the land. And all the Israelites will be priests. They will all be anointed with the oil of the Spirit of God. And they will all be sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and so on and so forth. Now this is a prophecy, isn't it? And what about the New Testament? Does the New Testament confirm this understanding of what God will do in the latter days for His people Israel? Well here if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 4, let me take up my second point now, the change. In Luke chapter 4, in the beginning of Luke 4, we have the temptation of Jesus. But then in verse 14, 
Jesus begins his public ministry after the temptation. And if you look at Luke 4, verse 14, I'm on page 1024 here. But in verse 14, what do we read? And Jesus returned to Galilee. And what are those next words there? And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That means the Spirit of God is upon him. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching. And in verse 16, he enters the synagogue. He stands up to read. You know, in those days that the, uh, that the, uh, in the synagogues, the, the people would stand and the teacher would, would uh, sit. And what does Jesus say? And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And I hope these words sound familiar to you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down and began to teach them. Now, my friends, what is this, what is this, what is this communicating to us? This is teaching us, isn't it, that Isaiah 61 was not just about Israel coming back from exile, rebuilding their broken cities, and living in the land of Israel, that it had a higher significance, a higher meaning. And Jesus teaches us what that meaning was. And Jesus now comes and says, that prophecy is fulfilled in me. I am anointed with the Spirit of God. And I stand in the place of that one in Isaiah 61. And I will proclaim liberty to the captives. And I will preach the acceptable year of the Lord, the favorable year of the Lord. So this is Jesus. He returns in the power of the Spirit, it says in verse 14. And in verse 21, he sits down and he says, This day, in verse 21, This day, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And of course, the people are enraged at that because they understand full well the claims that he's making for himself. But Jesus says, this day, Isaiah 61, is fulfilled here in this place. Jesus is anointed with the Spirit. But again, uh, we look back at the prophecy that we had in Isaiah 61, and we note that it says that all the Israelites will be priests. Now I can see that Jesus was anointed, that Jesus had the Spirit of God upon him. But now if we turn to John's teaching, and we look at John, uh, 1 John 2, if you'll turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2 is on page 1218, 1218. And 1 1 John 2 and verse 20. This is on the next page, 1219. But notice what John says. And let's actually back up to verse 18. So 1 John 2 and verse 18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing. From the Holy One. And you all know. 
Notice what John is saying. That false teachers have come into the church. And many people from John's church have followed after these antichrists, these false teachers. But now John turns to the people that have stayed behind and remained faithful. And he says, you have an anointing. That means you, the Spirit of God has come down on you and has preserved you in the truth. And you can see that John even continues. In verse 27, or verse 21, he essentially says, I've written to you not, not to teach you these things because I already, you know all these things already. And in verse uh, 27, he makes uh, another astonishing statement. In verse 27, he says, As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So all God's people have this anointing. All God's people are priests. And all God's people are prophets. And all God's people are kings. One last, uh, one last uh, uh, scripture here, and that is 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. I'm on page 1212 now. So just a few pages back, actually. And when Peter is speaking to the Christians that he's writing to, Notice the words that he uses to describe them. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now that's interesting because they're a royal, which is a kingly title, and a priesthood, which is clearly a priest. You are a royal priesthood. Again, Peter does not distinguish. He does not say the elders are a royal priesthood or the ministers amongst you are royal priesthood. But no, all Christians have this anointing from God and are a royal priesthood. Now, my friends, you know that this, this idea was greatly abused in the Roman Catholic Church when they, they, again, had just a certain class of men that they called clergy who were ordained to stand between the normal, the laity, the normal people and God. They were like the mediators between God and the people. And you know that the Reformation cut that to pieces. And I actually would like to say more about that on Reformation Day. We have a service on, on the Wednesday, the 26th, in which I hope to say more about that. So I'm going to drop that for now. And I'd like to move on to the, these applications then, these points of application. Well, my friends... In the first application, I would like to discuss the privileges of God's people. Because that's really what we've considered this evening. That just as Christ was anointed to be prophet, priest, and king, you might say, congregation, if you can, if you can picture this in your mind, that that oil drips down Christ and anoints all those who are clinging to him as well. All those who are joined to Christ participate in that anointing. That is what our instructor has told us. I am a member. I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. This is every Christian. Shares in Christ's anointing. Well, then that means, dear friends, that you are anointed, if you are a Christian this evening, that you are anointed with the Holy Spirit to be a prophet. 
You are anointed with the Holy Spirit to be a priest. And you are anointed with the Holy Spirit to be a king. This is the privilege of every Christian. A prophet with the, with the function of teaching. A priest with the function of making atonement. And a king to rule. In all these things, my friends, you are called to be. And in the second application, I want to talk about what that means in terms of what we do. But in this first point of application is we have this anointing. We have this anointing that comes down upon us. That then functions as our call to do this ministry. Just as it said in Isaiah 61 and verse 6, you are all called to be priests. You are all ministers of our God. And isn't it the case that we often tend to think in our life, especially in church life, that somehow the pastor has a special anointing or a special calling? Or that the elders of the church maybe have a special calling? And we tend to exalt certain people to a certain level. And we think they're the ministers. They're the ones with the responsibility of carrying on the work of the church. But my friends, that doesn't fly with the New Testament. It's not consistent with what the New Testament teaches, is it? And it's certainly not consistent with what our catechism teaches us. That all Christians participate in this anointing. Now this does not mean that we don't set people aside for certain offices. That's consistent. That we understand. But we must not move, dear friends, from saying that we set aside certain people to certain offices, which is biblical, to the unbiblical idea that those men have a special anointing unique to them that is not shared by all Christians generally. Then you move really into Roman Catholicism. You move into something that the New Testament says is not the case. You know, I, was, I think I've shared this with you before. I'll share it again because I, I really, I found this a striking comment that John MacArthur made. At one of his conferences, one of the people stood up, uh, a young woman stood up and asked him, and she said, what authority does my pastor have over me? Now think about John MacArthur giving an answer to this question because he's a man of great influence. You know that. And do you want to know how he answered that? The woman asked, what authority does my pastor or my elders have over me? And John said, none. None. Now, first you hear that and you think, well, now, hold up a minute. But John went on. And he said, none. Unless your pastor or your elder comes with the word of God. When your pastor and when your elder comes with his own opinion, that's no better or no worse than anybody else's opinion. I'm not saying that you should just dismiss it. But I'm saying it carries no weight beyond the weight of anybody else's opinion in the church. But when your pastor or your elder comes with the word of God, then he has the authority of God himself behind him. Then he says, thus saith the Lord. That, my friends, is the teaching of the New Testament. 
And I was, I was surprised to see MacArthur make a statement like that. Because MacArthur is the kind of man who has such influence that he could have used his influence to sway people, to move people to this or to that. But he has such respect for the word of God that he said no person, no elder, no deacon, no pastor, no matter if he has PhD many times behind his name, no matter what he might claim, no matter how hard he pounds the pulpit, has any authority unless he comes with a thus saith the Lord. Then he has the authority of God himself behind him. Let's remember that congregation. That's the teaching of scripture. That's the teaching of our catechism. That all Christians participate in the anointing of Christ. Now, my friends, that comes with a responsibility. Let's move then to the second application, the purpose of it. Imagine, children, that a person uh, was called to, and again, we don't have kings in this country, I know, but suppose that in old England, somebody was called to London. The king or the queen had died, and this man comes, and now the nobles gather, and they anoint this man king of England. And he's made king of England. And everybody shouts, and they have a huge party, huge celebration. And the gold crown is put on his head. He has the purple robe put upon him. And you, we saw some of this pomp and circumstance, didn't we, when, when Queen Elizabeth died. But then the day after, or the week after, however long the celebration takes place, the king lays aside his robe, he puts his crown on the shelf, and he goes back to his home. And he goes out and he milks his cow, and he plows his corn, right? Weeds his garden. And people begin to wonder, uh, Aren't you the king? What are you doing here? You were anointed for a purpose. You were anointed to be king over this land. What are you doing back here, back, acting like a peasant? Well, my friends, in the same way, when we consider the truth and rejoice in this truth, that we are members of Christ and that we participate in his anointing, that comes now with a challenge, with a call. It's for a purpose. And our catechism has listed that for us, to confess his name. That means to be a prophet. This is God's call to us in this dark and broken world in which we live. Something of which we considered this morning. We are called to confess his name. To be a prophet. Only the men? No, not in this sense. Because also the women participate in Christ's anointing. And they too are called to be a prophetic voice in their families. In their schools, in their churches, in the world at large. In their places of employment if they are so employed. All Christians are anointed to confess his name. Second, as a priest, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks. Remember, that's what Paul talked about in Romans 12. That is to take your body, to take who you are, to take all that you have, to place it on the altar, and to offer it up to God as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And my friends, and especially those of us in families, we have the inestimable privilege of leading our children to the sacrifice of Christ as well. And what a blessing, mothers, fathers amongst us, to be a priest in your home and to lead your children to Christ. Is there any higher privilege than that? What a blessing and what a gift that is. But then also to be kings. You know, right away we think about kings. Well, yeah, we get to rule other people and tell them what to do. No. Look what our catechism says, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life. You know what that means, my friends? That we have enough work to rule ourselves. We have enough rule to bring this city under subjection 
to Jesus Christ. Yes, you might be called to rule in the church as an elder or to rule in civil government as a governor or a congressman or whatever it may be. But in the first place as a, as a Christian, to rule this city, that means we have to go to work on ourselves. We have to bring ourselves in subjection to Christ. This is the purpose, my friends, that we have to do, to be a prophet, to be a priest, and to be a king. And now to the third application, because I think we all feel this, don't we? Who can do these things? Who is sufficient? Confessing his name? Presenting myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks? Ruling my own city? My friends, it's not possible. It's not possible in your own strength. But thanks be to God, that's what we're talking about this evening, dear friends. That we have an anointing. When Christ came to this earth, the Holy Spirit came upon him to empower him to do his work of prophet, priest, and king. And now, my friends, that same spirit drips down upon us, his children. And it fills us with a power, with a strength that is not our own. And so when we talk about these fainting times, these times of despair, these times of despondency, by the way, the word fainting there, I, I got that from Spurgeon. You remember the great Baptist pastor Spurgeon? And he wrote a chapter, he wrote a book called Advice to My Students. He had many theological ministerial students. And one of the speeches he gave one time was called On the Fainting Fits of the Minister. The fainting fits. Those times when our spirits flag, when we lose courage, when we begin to despair. And that's the time, my friends, when we need to remember, I am a member of Christ and I share in his anointing. The same spirit that empowered Christ empowers me. And so you think about that, dear friends. You think about those times that we try to be faithful in our workplace. Maybe you're speaking with somebody. Maybe you're trying to speak to somebody. Maybe you're trying to get an opportunity. Maybe, as a, maybe with a family member, a parent with a child, or, or it can be any family member, and we're praying for them. We're longing for that time when they'll turn to Christ. Maybe you have the task of leading Bible studies. Whatever ministry you may have in the church, as a parent conducting family worship, parenting just generally. We have those times when we faint, when we grow discouraged, we grow weary. But my friends, the preaching of the gospel to us tonight is that we participate in Christ's anointing. And Spurgeon, I thought he, he put that so well in that chapter. It's quite a long quote there. But notice what he says here. He says, all this is promotive or promotes the Lord's mode or way of working, which is summed up in these words, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Remember, those are the words that God gave to Zechariah when he was in exactly that kind of position. He was in one of those fainting times. He was so discouraged to try to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. He was so discouraged. And yet God came to him with those precious words, not by might, that is not by your might, nor by your power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And Spurgeon goes on to say, instruments shall be used, but their intrinsic weakness shall be clearly manifested. 
There shall be no division of the glory, no diminishing the honor due to the great worker. Remember what Paul, or maybe it's not Paul, it's in the prophets. My glory will I not give to another, God says. Nor will God give his glory to you. And those times of fainting bring us to realize that our strength for ministry work comes not from ourselves, but comes from the Spirit of God flowing to us through the mediator, Jesus Christ. Spurgeon continues, The man shall be emptied of self, and then filled with the Holy Spirit. In his own apprehension he shall be like a dry leaf driven of the tempest, and then shall be strengthened into a brazen wall against the enemies of truth. To hide pride from the worker is the great difficulty. Uninterrupted success and unfading joy in it would be more than our weak heads could bear. Our wine must needs be mixed with water, lest it turn our brains. My witness is that those who are honored of their Lord in public have usually to endure a secret chastening or to carry a peculiar cross, lest by any means they exalt themselves and fall into the snare of the devil. I can't help but think of Elijah. Elijah stood down the king of Israel and all the prophets of Baal. He fearlessly stood them down. And the very next day, remember that? The very next day he flees at the threat of Jezebel and says, Lord, take my life. He had a fainting fit, didn't he? Now, my friends, I want you to think about that. And when you come to those times in your life, and as you seek to be faithful to God in our generation, those times of discouragement, those times of despair, that you reach out and take hold of this truth. I wish I could write that on the forehead of every Christian here. I share in his anointing. That would give you a strength, my friends, that's not your own. That would give you strength to continue. Strength not to lay down, not to give up. But strength to take that next step. That might be the hardest one. You might be ready to say with Elijah, take my life. Paul, too, had a thorn in his flesh. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, God's power works in our weakness. You know, there's something deeply pleasurable about that, isn't there? Something liberating, as it were. That I am weak, but he is strong. And I am strong when I participate and share in his anointing. My friends, I pray that God would, would write these words upon our hearts so that we would not lose courage as we seek to be faithful to him, as we seek to carry on this calling that God has given us to do wherever it may be, at work, at college, at home, at church, I share in his anointing. Praise God for that. Let us pray. Lord, we draw near to you, confessing our weakness, confessing, Lord, how short and how far we come, how far short we come of all that you have called us to do. But Lord, we know that we can stand like Elijah in the evil day, we can boldly face down the king of Israel and all his 450 prophets of Baal. When we are weak, then we are strong. And when we think we are strong in our own strength, then we are sure to fail. O oh God, grant that each one today may encourage himself with these glorious words. I share in his anointing. Until that great day comes. And O oh Lord, we're looking for and expecting that day. 
when you shall gather your children home to glory. And there too we shall reign as kings, to reign in glory forever and forever. O God, grant that this too would encourage your people this day, and that they too might look forward in hope to the glory that is to be revealed to every one of us. When you will say to your children, Come, inherit, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Lord, bless and keep us then. We pray, Lord, that in due time you would bring us back together again as congregation and pastor and to the glory of your name. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king. Amen.